Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Special counsel Robert Herr finds evidence that Joe Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials, but recommends no criminal charges in part because of Biden's age and memory lapses. Plus, even liberal Supreme Court justices sound skeptical of kicking Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot. Welcome. I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnist Kim Strassel and editorial board member Mene Ukwe-Barua. After classified files were discovered in Joe Biden's garage in Delaware next to the first Corvette, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed special counsel Robert Hurd to investigate. That was about a year ago. And on Thursday, Mr. Hurd delivered an extensive report of more than 300 pages. Kim, the obvious place to start is what does it say and what did this inquiry find? Sure. Um, So on the substance, it did find, as you said in your opening, that evidence that President Biden had willfully retained and disclosed classified materials. He had kept these materials in his garage, in his basement den, and in numerous offices. Some of the material included those with classified markings related to Afghanistan, which was a topic that very much animated Joe Biden during his time when he was vice president. Some of it were notebooks in which the special counsel noted that Biden had implicated sensitive intelligence sources and methods in his notes in those notebooks that were also found on his property. The report also found that President Biden had shared this classified information with one person, at least, who was not cleared to access it. His ghostwriter, who worked with President Biden in particular on a 2017 memoir, the special counsel also found that Joe Biden appeared to be aware that he was in possession of classified material in that there was a recorded conversation between himself and his ghostwriter in which he said that he had found the classified stuff in the basement or downstairs. One other thing that I think is notable, not getting as much attention, is that this went on for a very long period of time. There were papers dating all the way back to Joe Biden's time when he was in the Senate. And yet, as I'm sure we will discuss, the special counsel has decided that even though there was all this quite compelling evidence, that he was not going to bring charges charges because, and I think the key takeaway here, one of the biggest reasons was that he was worried the jury would see an elderly, well-meaning man who just had a very bad memory. One thing that I would add to that is that anybody who is saying this is an exoneration for Joe Biden or shows that he did not break the law, I think has not read this report very closely. Robert Hur seems to be arguing that there are mitigating factors for not bringing charges and that there may be difficulty in establishing beyond a reasonable doubt that Joe Biden had willfully intended to keep this information. He says that that is the requirement in the statute, that you prove that someone intended to break the law And the evidentiary record would pose problems to that. So as Kim relates, there's this recorded conversation with Biden's ghostwriter on one of his books. He says he just found all the classified stuff downstairs. And then the special counsel goes and says, we looked for 
direct evidence that he was referring to classified material. They couldn't find anything, any witnesses, any photos, emails, etc., that would conclusively place these files on Afghanistan at the home in Virginia where Joe Biden was living at the time. This was in 2017. He says there are other innocent explanations for the documents that we cannot refute. Biden could have been referring to something else. And then he also describes the way that other former presidents, vice presidents have been treated. This was a month, I think, after Biden left the vice presidency that this conversation took place with the ghostwriter February of 2017. Apparently, Ronald Reagan had some classified material in his diaries at one point. And so it does seem like there is a long history of the people in power not respecting the classification rules that the you know, their staffs are really expected to live up to by the letter, dotting every I and crossing every T. And Manet, I think the president's response to some of these allegations at the press conference he had was unconvincing. He blamed his staff and so forth. He said he took responsibility for not keeping a closer eye on what they are doing. But I think that anybody who goes and looks at the executive summary even of this report by the special counsel will find a different story. Yes, it's absolutely not persuasive to argue that President Biden wasn't aware of what he was doing when those documents turned up both in his office at the University of Pennsylvania and also in his home in Delaware. We know, first of all, that he was in the Senate for decades and also was chairman of the Committee on Foreign Relations and had a very acute sense of which documents uh, would be classified and the sensitivity level of all the materials that he and his staff were handling. I think it's true that there is nothing that necessarily has shown directly that Biden directed his staff to move specifically classified documents to those two locations. But as Kim and you both mentioned, it is clear that he knew after the fact that they were classified because of the conversations he was having with his ghostwriter during the time of composing that memoir. And so we know that he directed the documents to be moved. We know that he knew that they were classified. And that seems to meet the letter of the law in terms of the crime that he was being investigated before. The reason why charges were not brought by Robert Hur is because of the mitigating factors, first and foremost of which is that President Biden is now president and the political risk of bringing charges against somebody at that level, not only president now, but also a presidential candidate for the re-election coming up this year. And I think Robert Hur was constrained by that political weight in a way that Jack Smith was not in investigating Trump for a similar crime. Of course, as I'm sure we'll get into, there are other different factors in the investigation of the documents that Trump had at Mar-a-Lago versus Biden's handling of his own classified documents. But I do still think fundamentally the reason why Biden is coming out so forcefully and denying all wrongdoing and the reason a lot of the press has been calling it an exoneration is because they want to draw a very clean distinction between what Biden did and what Trump did when that distinction isn't really quite there in terms of the fundamental crime being alleged, the mishandling of the classified documents, despite the fact that there were big differences in how they subsequently handled those documents. Kim, what do you make of that question? Because comparisons to the Trump document case are inevitable, and the special counsel, Robert Hur must have known that they were inevitable. There is a paragraph or two in his report that takes this question up. He says, it's not our role to assess the criminal charges pending against Mr. Trump, but several material distinctions 
between Mr. Trump's case and Mr. Biden's are clear. And then he goes on and explains those. Here's one of them after being given multiple chances to return classified documents and avoid prosecution. Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. According to the indictment, he not only refused to return the documents for many months, but he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then lie about it, unquote. And Kim, I mean, I do think that there is some truth to that. And this gets back to the mitigating factors and the reasonable doubt standard that these things are held to. So some of these documents in Biden's home were kept in, according to the report, a badly damaged box in the garage near a collapsed dog crate, a dog bed, a Zappos box, an empty bucket, a broken lamp wrapped with duct tape, potting soil, and synthetic firewood. And so the special counsel is raising the argument that it may be a doubtful in the jurors' minds whether this was stuff that Biden really knew and willfully knew that he had there and was storing there, or whether this was stuff that got thrown in a box that Biden had forgotten about and was not even really cognizant of the fact that it was sitting in his garage next to that broken lamp. And again, that does not excuse what is obviously clearly mishandling of classified information, which is serious. And anybody who is at a lower level would probably not have recourse to that kind of excuse. Uh, But there is, I think, a different level of willfulness to what Trump is accused of doing, particularly when you get into the fact that it's alleged that he asked a staffer, an aide of his, to go delete the Mar-a-Lago security footage after getting a subpoena for it. I totally get the point on obstruction and absolutely agree that that is a totally different crime, one that it does not appear to be present in the Biden case, for which, by the way, Donald Trump has been charged. The issue And I think the thing that Donald Trump's lawyers will make an issue out of and that the president will understandably and conservatives make hay out of is the fact that Donald Trump isn't just charged with obstruction. He's charged with mishandling classified information. And in that regard, the scenario and the the similarities between what he did and Joe Biden are really quite striking. They both had classified information in their possession. They both were seemingly aware of the fact that they had classified information. They both appeared to have taken it for their own benefit. That is certainly the case with Joe Biden and his notebooks, which we know from the report he referred to extensively and had out for the purposes of writing his memoir. And I would note, Kyle, too, that those notebooks were not stored in some box in his garage. And in fact, uh, during his interview, he disputed that he shouldn't have them. He said, they're my property. And to Manea's point, again, a person who spent as many years as he did in skiffs handling sensitive and classified information should have known better than to have written down such sensitive information and taken it with him. So that's not in any doubt. And again, in both cases, the men appear to have shared this information with someone else. Those are the basic facts here. And you can put forward all kinds of mitigating arguments, which the special counsel did. But I think that that's another really notable double standard here is that it would appear that when it comes to Joe Biden, every benefit of the doubt was given him with regards to how a jury would look at this. And are you proving this beyond a reasonable doubt? 
Whereas in every situation with Donald Trump, the worst scenario was assumed. Facts were stretched to fit the narrative. I mean, there's no definitive proof. You know, there's a recording as well of Donald Trump suggesting he's referring to classified information. Is that any more definitive than what happened with Joe Biden's recording? I mean, people can look at that closely and do the details, but I think it's notable. They're both on tape referring to classified information. One guy doesn't get charged, another guy does. So that's what Donald Trump's lawyers are going to head into court with, and that is what Republicans are going to use in the court of public opinion. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more on this in a moment. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. This gets to the point of Biden's age and his memory, because the special counsel says that even in these recorded conversations with his ghostwriter, Biden's answers are often painfully slow, with Mr. Biden struggling to remember events and straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries. He also has this line that Kim cited earlier about the jury possibly seeing him as an elderly, well-meaning man. And then the special counsel says in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. He did not remember even within several years when his son Bo died and his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. And this is part of what the president responded to then at a remarkable news conference on Thursday evening. And let's listen to him answer the question about whether he is too old to do the job. For months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Many American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is your judgment. That is your judgment. That is not the judgment of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? What is your answer to that question? Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. Manet, what do you make of that answer? I suspect that there are many Democratic voters, Democrats who are in high positions within the party who think, you know, there are all sorts of other candidates who could do this job other than Biden. And given the polls, it would be very nice if we could slot one of them in as somebody who didn't have these kinds of questions of age and capability hanging over them. Well, you can absolutely hear the defiance in President Biden's voice as he fields that question. I'm sure that he has the feeling by now that he's fielding it in some form just about every single day from the press and elsewhere, probably from people in his inner circle about his mental acuity. I do think that the report from Robert Hur, which, of course, gets into Biden's memory or lack thereof, is really poorly timed for President Biden because he has just had these very visible public incidents of misremembering names in a really embarrassing way, confusing the names of heads of state and other people in government, people that should absolutely be top of mind for any president. So it's becoming very difficult for him to hide his problem with slipping memory. You now have that being backed up by Robert Hur, who 
I think it's worth noting, was not sitting across from Biden in a press conference room, but was speaking with him, or rather his his staff was speaking with him in a close setting where he should have been very comfortable, had time to recollect himself, not have to give answers that seem scripted the way you do at a press conference, and he still was completely befuddled. And so I think this is absolutely going to break through to the public in a bigger way than it has up until this point. Democrats are already dissatisfied with Biden for a variety of reasons, his age being one of them. But I do think clips of this kind are going to be on all the evening shows on the networks and are going to be on social media. And people are going to just be much more aware as we begin the ramp up to election season that Biden has lost a step even compared with the relatively fatigued level that he came in at. So I do think that the question of whether it would make sense to replace him with another candidate depends in part on timing. We've got into a very late stage now, and I think that a lot of Democrats feel like the you know, ship has completely sailed, and if there was a time to force Biden aside, it would have been um, really at the beginning of this year or the end of last year, but now it will be very difficult to do. The only scenario where I could see that happening is if there's a real emergency where he were to have some kind of health incident or to freeze up maybe in the way that we actually have seen Mitch McConnell freeze up in a way that will raise the level of alarm. So Democrats are in a very tough position where Biden's vulnerability is clearer than ever. But at the same time, it's probably too late to have any kind of clean replacement of him with a different candidate. Kim, what's your read of this? And the other fodder I would throw in here is it didn't help then as he was leaving, someone pressed shouted out a question about Israel and Joe Biden came back and answered it and said this. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. I've been pushing really hard, really hard to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza. So, Kim, there he's obviously talking about Egypt's border with Gaza and accidentally says Mexico, the president of Mexico. And I get the response from Team Biden, which is that you know people make mistakes. The president is recorded at all hours of the day. On the other hand, we've had two similar incidents already this week where President Biden was speaking about the French president Macron and said Mitterrand, a previous French president. And then just shortly after that, here's the NBC report. President Joe Biden on Wednesday twice referred to the late German chancellor Helmut Kohl instead of former Chancellor Angela Merkel while detailing a 2021 conversation. And Kim, two things. One is that Helmut Kohl left power in 1998, and he is not exactly a spitting image of Angela Merkel. When I watched Joe Biden do that press conference yesterday, I really felt as though we had hit a moment. You know, when the special counsel released his report, it was obviously very damning the information that was in it and the claims that Joe Biden had struggled so much during those interviews, the pronouncements that he had a poor memory and the presentation from prosecutors, a whole team of prosecutors and the Department of Justice of a man that really did not necessarily look to be capable of doing the monumental job he has. 
The huge mistake in my mind, though, was the press office deciding, which is a common impulse in press departments, that they needed to hit back and hard and to roll out the president, who then stumbled through his prepared remarks, even at one point reading one of the prompts on the teleprompter, continue quote, and then making that mistake that you just played about one of the most pressing issues of the day, a war in the Middle East, in which he once again was unable to recall the country he was talking about. I guess he got the leader right, but he also named the country of Mexico halfway around the world. He looked everything, every bit, the person that had just been described in that report. And I thought, uh uh-oh. I mean, this is the moment that I think the Democratic Party has to begin to think seriously about his ability to win this election. Because when you have a moment like this, it tees up this issue for all to see as not just a question in his election and re-election decision, but potentially the question. Is he up to the job? We already know from polls that there are doubts, but these errors are becoming more frequent and it's now becoming an unavoidable, the number one thing that people are thinking and asking when they look at President Biden. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. So how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it and massive compute power or another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right. Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. We talked earlier in the week on the Supreme Court's argument on whether Colorado can throw Trump off the 2024 ballot under the 14th Amendment for engaging in insurrection on January 6th, 2021. And to close the loop on that, Manet, one thing that was remarkable to me was the skeptical tenor of almost all of the questioning and the oral argument that took place on Thursday morning, including from the liberal justices. We have a couple clips here. Let's start with Justice Elena Kagan. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan, and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected, I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? And here is Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson asking whether this disqualification clause even covers the office of the presidency, which is not specifically mentioned in the 14th Amendment. Why didn't they put the word president in the very enumerated list in Section 3? The thing that really is troubling to me is I totally understand your argument, but they were listing people that were barred and president is not there. 
And so I guess that just makes me worry that maybe they weren't focusing on the president and, for example, the fact that electors of vice president and president are there suggests that really what they thought was if we're worried about the charismatic person, we're going to bar insurrectionist electors and therefore that person is never going to rise. Manea, I came out of this argument wondering if there was, you know, two votes or maybe even one vote on Colorado's side here, or maybe we're going to get a unanimous or or close to it ruling from the Supreme Court. Well, that's exactly the encouraging reading that I think a lot of people are coming out of that oral argument with. The unanimity of the courts would be absolutely huge on this issue because of how important it is. Obviously, we don't want to set a precedent wherein any state is able to disqualify a presidential candidate because we know as soon as that floodgate is opened, it's going to become a regular occurrence across the country in every single presidential election. So for the Supreme Court to not only decide that Colorado is unable to disqualify Trump, but to do so with a united front that shows that the decision isn't something being pushed by the conservative majority would be really healthy for American politics and future presidential elections. But I think that the reading that you had isn't overly optimistic. Anyone listening to the line of questioning from the liberal justices would have to think that they are very skeptical of Colorado's case. The idea that Kagan called into question that this sort of national question could be decided by individual states is sort of a key plank of the Colorado argument that she attacked, I think, um, very directly and showed her skepticism of. And same thing for Justice Jackson's line of questioning. I thought that was particularly impressive. She was suggesting that not only might there be a lack of evidence for Colorado to disqualify Trump, but that presidents are actually excluded from that 14th Amendment provision in the first place. And I think that you would have a lot of liberal justices or liberal jurists who would rather preserve that power of the court to be able to weigh in on the president's eligibility. And so kind of her taking that line of questioning and suggesting that the president is actually exempted from that is something that maybe went even a little bit further than people expected the justices to go in terms of making sure that this doesn't become a recurring problem for future presidential elections. So, of course, the voting will come later and there's still time for the justices to speak amongst themselves and study the question. But in as far as the oral argument shows where they're leaning, it's an encouraging sign so far. Kim, we'll give you the last word. But the other thing that struck me about the argument was just that the skeptical questions were on a whole range of issues. Does this disqualification clause even cover the presidency? Can states apply it? Does Congress need to set out some formula for what an insurrection is defined as in this context? Is the 14th Amendment's disqualification clause self-executing in that way? And there was another stumper, I thought, from Justice Gorsuch who said, "Okay, your argument is that on January 6th, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, made himself ineligible to hold that office. Well, President Biden was not inaugurated until January 20th. And so was there two weeks where President Trump was not legitimately the president? He was a pretender. Could people go back and sue and try to overturn any actions that the executive branch took in that period? And then 
Justice Samuel Alito joined the pylon and said, what about prospectively? What if you had a military officer after January 6th who decided he was going to refuse his orders because the president is not legally the president under this disqualification clause if this is self-executing and automatically works without any intervention or finding by Congress or any court? Kim, again, I find the skepticism unanimous almost among the court, although Justice Sonia Sotomayor was a little harder to read, but I find it harder to figure out which specific grounds they are most likely to go after as they are probably ruling against Colorado. Yeah, and I would wager that what's going to happen now is Chief Justice John Roberts is going to do a lot of canvassing and try to find the area or the areas where he can get a 9-0 decision if that's possible. And I sure hope that that's what happens. I mean, as you have mentioned and we've run through, there were a great deal of areas you could go on this. I thought it was really fascinating how concerned the liberal justices were were about the states and the self-executing aspect of this provision. But when you back up, that shouldn't surprise people at all in that that side of the bench tends to be more skeptical of states' rights. And you add to that the potential havoc of states and a patchwork quilt confusion here. So it could be on that. It could be on the technical questions of why the president's name wasn't specifically mentioned. But I really hope, and I've said this before, that they do get to a 9-0 decision. You know, Sotomayor was a bit quiet. Everyone's wondering about that. But it would be a very strong signal to send. First of all, to show unanimity in the court on issues like this, when everybody feels so cavalier about claiming the court is political. So to speak in one voice on this and to brush back some of the lawfaring that's going on would be good. But also just to send that signal that there are limits to this new rage of trying to litigate everything that should happen in elections in courts and that the court isn't going to have a lot of tolerance for it. Thank you, Kim and Manet. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Potomac Watch. The Claude Three Model Family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.